Hello, welcome everyone to A Reason for Hope. Happy Monday. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. It's good to see you all once again. Thank you for joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live Bible Q&A session. That's right. You can send in your questions on the Bible through our multiple online platforms, which I'll run over in just a moment. And I'll be monitoring those chat boxes, etc., as we go along. And I will be throwing your questions at Pastor Peter Martin today, just him and I. <laughs> Peter and I live across the street from each other, so we used to be in pretty close. I literally across the street, literally stones. I see you too much. Yeah, I don't like too, it. way too much. I try to. Sneak I avoid in. you at the office on purpose. <laughs> yes. We are in each, each other's lives a lot. Literally stones throw. I've tried to throw stones at his house successfully. Did you make it? Yeah, <laughs> I did make it. Yeah. Yep, but you never know it was me. But uh, yeah, how you doing? Doing good today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. doing really good. It's good to see you. Usually yeah, Adrian's here today, but yeah. uh, he's a little under the weather. So uh, I came on in to cover, as he has for me many times. So thank the you. The allergies are rough this year. Man. <clears throat> the allergies are rough this year. They're really rough. And yeah. finally they hit him. Yes. He said it was like a sinus infection, right? Sinus infection. But yeah. I get allergies to the point of sinus infections, and that's it. Forget about it. Yeah. You're just out. Yeah, yeah, out of it. So, But that's what you get here in the desert in Tucson, Arizona. Especially from when you're from another country, your body's like, what is going on here with all the dust? But anyway, as I mentioned, the Reason for Hope is uh, Bible Q&A. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, but of course, you can join us all around the world through the wonders of the internets. Um, so you're all very welcome today. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship <clears throat> here in Tucson. So if you're in the Tucson area and you would like to come check out our church here, if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you are more than welcome to come but uh, we're not interested in poaching you from another church or anything like that but if you're looking for somewhere to worship the Lord come check us out obviously we have Sunday services we have a Wednesday evening service as well we're in the book of Ezekiel right now on Wednesday evenings in the book of Acts on Sunday we're a Calvary Chapel affiliated church and usually the case is that you'll find uh, verse by verse uh, chapter by chapter book by book teaching we pick a book of the Bible and teach through it whatever it says we uh, teach it. Um, that's kind of the style of Calvary Chapels usually. So anyway, that's what we're all about, Calvary Chapel. Uh, sorry, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Um, but uh, our website right there, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, you can have a, a click around there. But for the purposes of tonight, see that Watch Live tab. If you go there, you'll see our live page. Whenever we're live, you'll see us broadcast into that page. The direct link is ccftucson.online.church. And you'll see a countdown to our next event. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events. But when we're live, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with the username and then be part of the, the chat right there. I'll be monitoring the chat box there for your questions as they come on in. Uh, we're on Facebook as well, of course, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Or look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Um, that's another way you can send your question in on the chat function. Don't forget to like and share and all that good stuff if you would. Helps us to to spread this ministry. Um, if you've been blessed, we'd appreciate that. We could reach out to your friends as well as yourself. But I'll be monitoring that as well for your questions. We have a, a mobile app as well for your iPhone or Android or iPad or mobile device, whatever it may be. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, and you'll see that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. That's our app, and you can watch us there as well. It's the same feed as from our website, just so you know that for the tech information. Uh, we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well, so look in your channel store for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a Roku device or an Apple TV device, you can watch us on, on your big screen. Don't look too closely, though. <coughs> 
especially on Mondays. Uh, we're on YouTube as well. Uh, look for A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. And if you go to that live tab right there, anytime we've been live, you'll see an archive of our shows. And so if you missed one or um, you'd like to check out our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship or you'd like to recap a question or whatever, it's all right there on the live tab. And of course, we're live there as well right now at A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Don't forget to like and share and subscribe. And if you click on that notification bell, that means you'll get a little notification when we're live um, in case you're just going about your day and you'd like a little ping, we're live. Oh yeah, let me sit down with some coffee and check out A Reason for Hope. Not at this hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, it's very late for coffee. I just yeah. had coffee, that's why I'm talking so fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll get through a lot of questions today. So yep, uh, Reason for Hope on YouTube. And our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Pastor Scott Richards, he's on Twitter. He's with us uh, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays at the moment, for the most part. Uh, his handle is at Scott R4H, that's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, on uh, Twitter, uh, he posts um, not only highlights from the show, but uh, kind of commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the news as it pertains to end times and prophecy and that kind of thing. So he's a great source for uh, to keep up to date on those kind of things. He often gives us an update on the show when he's here, mm-hmm. prophecy update. Um, we are living in the end times and we're seeing uh, uh, birthing pains and the, the increasing thereof in frequency, just the Bible, as the Bible said, uh, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and all these things we are literally seeing it played out which is scary but also exciting because we know where our hope is so anyway pastor scott on twitter he posts some shenanigans too so anyway scott arthur h if you're a twitter kind of person we're on rumble as well we post uh, just the archive there look for a reason for hope bible q a if you use that platform that's rumble for you a reason for hope bible q a and our email address is questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com on the radio you're actually listening to our last show pre-recorded so uh, you're listening to friday's show on this monday and then of course i'm saying monday and you'll listen to that tomorrow (laughs) tuesday so (laughs) the last show we did um you're listening to that so we're not live with you on the radio so to speak but we're glad you're listening in but use that email address questions for hope at gmail.com and we will get to your question on our next show so with all that being said good job thank you thank you thank you so much i don't know if i'm getting better or worse but there it is <laughs> all the depends info. on the day it depends <laughs> it does depend on the day it's and not like one straight trajectory it's kind of it's <laughs> <laughs> true i use the coffee the good <laughs> days the bad days how much caffeine i've had but yeah anyway would you like to pray for yeah. us before we go any further absolutely we man. need it i need it let's rock it yeah. <laughs> yeah uh well dear god thank you so much that we have the opportunity to sit down and to get into your words uh, via these questions. I do pray that the way that me and Dave conduct ourselves in dialogue, the words that we speak would all, all be honoring to you, to your character and to your word and truth. I pray that those who are listening would be benefited by it, that they would be encouraged in their walk. And if they don't have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that this conversation would help them, encourage them towards you. Uh, we're thankful for you, God, in your name. Amen. 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 Right. Well, do you have something to share before we delve into questions? Any questions that might come in today? I do. So on, on Mondays, me and Adrian have been, I, I used to be doing this on Thursdays right. with Sean, and then uh, I got moved to Mondays, and now I do it on Mondays. So <laughs> we've been going through kind of bad. You're so stubborn. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm taking it with me. I'm taking it with me. Yeah. T- I don't want to talk about it anymore if you're going to move me on the day. <laughs> no. Uh, so we were talking about kind of bad philosophers mm. in the last couple hundred years that have led us to the current moment. And uh, I've talked before that this is loosely adapted from the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self 
by Carl Truman, which is a fantastic book, and I encourage people to read it. But uh, the benefit of it, when I read it, it, it really helped me out because it not only helps you understand your current cultural moment, if things in Western society seem a little crazy and you don't understand where these ideas are coming from and they seem like they've come out of nowhere, uh, this study hopefully shows you that these ideas have actually been in the culture for a long time, a couple hundred years actually. It's just taken this long for them to reach their kind of crazy peak that they're at right now. It'll help you hopefully engage with the culture a little bit better and it will also hopefully, again, help you to be not immune, but more prepared for how easily these ideas can kind of creep into your own Christian life, right? These ideas have crept into the church at a high level. And with a lot of these guys, they're coming from a Christian background. So a lot of these guys that I'm quoting, they're not atheists, they're agnostics, they're deists, and they're all coming from a Christian worldview and trying to understand these philosophical concepts in a way that comports with Christianity, but it actually doesn't. And so today we're going to be going over Charles Darwin. Last week, me and Adrian kind of got into his life. I, I was reading a, excerpts from a book about Darwin's faith and how he was a Christian and he fell away as a result of certain things, but mainly it was the death of his 10-year-old daughter. And that really struck me. So I thought it would mm. be important to talk about that, um, why Darwin fell away, because I think that his story really does exemplify a lot of people's study uh, stories in the West of falling away from faith and how that happened. So I encourage you guys to go listen to that if you didn't hear it last week. But today we're going to get into Darwin's philosophy. So Darwin's kind of contribution to the cultural, uh, I guess you could say dialogue or understanding or social imaginary, as Carl Truman would put it, is his understanding of evolutionary biology. So most people who have gone through the public education system, that this is going to be a recap for you. You've heard it. But what Darwin discovered, and this is something that uh, would be obvious, and then I'll kind of pull it back and show that what education, what the public education system teaches you about Darwin is actually untrue in comparison to what he actually tried to prove in his book on the origin of species. So Darwin went on a, I think it was a five-year voyage on this ship called the Beagle. And he went all around the world and he was studying animals and he was like a really, really meticulous note taker of these various species that he saw all around the world and how they adapted to their environment and things like that. And he started to develop a theory as to how species develop. Now, this is very different than what were taught in school. So in school, they teach us that Darwin proved the origin of life. Mm. And that's not true. That's not what he was trying to prove inside of his book. What he's trying to prove is where did species come from? So what is a species? Well, a species is a variation within a kind. So it would be like the difference between a Siberian Husky and a Chihuahua, right? They're, they're of the dog family. They're, they're of the canine family. They're dog kind but they're very different. There are variations within the kinds or species within the kind of animal. So he's trying to explain where did these species come from. He never actually claims that he proved that he figured out where the origin of life was. And he also never claimed that he found out where the origin of kinds was. He in fact theorizes at the end of the book that perhaps God seeded different kinds of animals on earth. He, he predicts maybe around four and from those four come all the varieties of life that we know. Mm. And he does quote some of his Christian friends who are like, yeah, that makes sense because on Noah's Ark, there's no way that they could fit all species of animals onto Noah's Ark. So it makes sense that he fit the kinds of animals 
that are needed for all the varieties that we see today. Right. So there was actually a lot of Christians that were immediately on board with what he was saying, but that was the idea that this is where species come from. Mm. Up until that time, there were a lot of naturalists who were saying that God individually created all the different species. But others were saying, well, no, because, you know, when you breed animals, you, you breed a chihuahua and a husky, and what do you get? An abomination. No. <laughs> yeah. Probably, the, depending on what gender really, the chihuahua is, I don't know if it's going to work. very difficult yeah. courtship. Yeah. <laughs> I would think. But you, you get like a hybrid, you know, from hybridization. You can get different types of breeds, that kind of go. So yeah. they already knew from animal husbandry that you can shift varieties through different breeding. What he discovered is how nature itself can affect species. So how an environment can favor the survival of one type of species over another, mm. and how that that shift can over time lead to a move within either a new variety altogether or just different types of varieties within a given kind of animal. So that was his contribution. Now, the dangerous thing about Darwin, the really dangerous thing about Darwin is that Darwin was not a philosopher. He was a scientist. Mm. But in his books, he has a lot of philosophy. And so what he was actually doing mm. is, and we've talked about it on the show before, the theory of evolution had already existed hundreds of years before Darwin. Mm. There was already an idea in Europe that animals can evolve. He just discovered the mechanism for it, the, mm. the natural selection mechanism for how that occurred. But it was already theorized. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived over a hundred years before Darwin, he had already said in his books that he believed that man developed from some sort of an ape. So it was already in the, <laughs> in the society. People were already talking about it. And there was a lot of different philosophies that underpinned it, which we'll get into in a second. Darwin only took a scientific approach to it, and he proved the theory. Now, the reason why people grabbed onto it so quickly, and even Darwin, by the way, was surprised at how quickly people gravitated towards this theory, mm. is because by proving the scientific theory, the implication was all the philosophical ideas are proved as a result. Mm. And that's a very dangerous thing. This is kind of, and I've termed it, uh, the rise of scientism. Mm. So the rise of scientism is kind of the era that we're in right now where people believe that everything can be proved scientifically. Yeah. Through the scientific method, we can prove literally anything. Now, just because science is a thing doesn't mean philosophy ceases to be a thing. There are material ways that I can figure out truth, but that doesn't negate logical truth. This is why you get in our society when people say, follow the science. Yeah. And like, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean follow the science? Or the science is spoken. Or, you know, this is the science, and we're just listening to the science. What are they talking about? Well, what they're talking about is they're talking about philosophical ideas that certain scientific theories and experiments lend credence to. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're proven. It just means that they've proven scientific things that could also prove these philosophical things. So, for instance, this is a quote from... Uh, on the origin of species, and we're going to be going, I'm sorry, this is a quote from The Descent of Man. The Descent of Man is probably the more important book. If you're going to read a book from Darwin, probably read The Descent of Man, because this is where a lot of his philosophy is contained. And he says this, the same high mental faculties which first led men to believe in unseen spiritual agencies, then in polytheism, and ultimately in monotheism, would infallibly lead them as long as his reasoning powers remained poorly developed to various strange superstitions and customs. Many of these are terrible to think of, such as the sacrifice of human beings to a blood-loving God, the trial of innocent persons by the ordeal of poisons or fire, witchcraft, etc. 
Yet, it is, well occasion, uh, it is well occasionally to reflect on these superstitions, for they show us what an infinite debt of gratitude we owe to the improvement of our reason, to science, and our accumulated knowledge. Now, what's the problem with that? This is a scientific book. That was not a scientific statement. Hmm. He is making yeah. a philosophical argument there, but he's doing it in a scientific book. Now, any philosopher reading this would be like, you didn't show your work. You didn't prove <laughs> any of that. You just asserted it boldfacedly and expected us to accept it because it's in a scientific book. This is what happens. Now in modern days, scientists believe that they can smuggle philosophical ideas into their science mm -hmm. and they don't have to defend it. Yeah. When you're reading a philosophical book, you expect someone to rationally explain their position. In a scientific book, it's just believe it because the science is spoken. Right. So for instance, modern day, when people said, we should keep schools closed during the COVID pandemic. The science has spoken yeah. or we should follow the science. Now, what they meant was there were scientific experiments that proved certain transmissibility between people and the effect that could happen to kids. Now, obviously, we found out that we knew pretty early on, actually, the danger to kids was pretty small. But regardless, you're talking about political policy. Yeah. You're not talking about any more what COVID does to somebody, you're making an inference from that, and then you're making a political policy about what would be best for a child mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. That's not science anymore. Yeah. You've now moved into metaphysics. It's a completely different category. Mm. And you got to show your work now. You got to now tell me why is it better for a child to be isolated from their peers for a year rather than risk the pandemic? Yeah. You got to explain that to me now. But they didn't feel like they had to because they had scientifically proven the transmissibility of a virus. Yep. That's the danger of what we're seeing. Or with the gender ideology, be like, well, the science shows that it lowers suicidal ideation for a kid to go through these experimental procedures. Well, no, no, no. All you've shown is that these things have an effect on the personality of, of the one undergoing it. You haven't shown that it's philosophically cogent for a man to become a woman. You also haven't shown that long-term that's best for the person. Because again, that's not a scientific argument. When we're talking about what's best for somebody, we've moved into the realm of metaphysics. We've mm. moved into the realm of what is good for a person to be yeah. versus not be. All you've proven is that you can make someone biologically appear or act in a different gender expression. That's all you've proven. But that's physics. We're talking about metaphysics now. But again, they don't feel the need to prove these things because, again, they've had this scientific proof. Darwin was one of the first people to start doing this, and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. You also see implicit in the quote that I just uh, put out is that he is now applying his theory to everything. So remember what he proved. He just proved that varieties within kinds or species can come about through natural selection. What's he doing here? He's applying that theory to the evolution of thought itself. Mm. He's explaining how primitive theological ideas about how the world works move into superstitions and then how that moves into reason. He's assuming his own premise. He's assuming that everything works this way. Little ideas or primitive ideas become big ideas, right? A polytheistic God becomes a more sophisticated monotheistic God, right? That's his presupposition. It's not true. You can't show that ideas evolve like that, but he's supposing it and he's putting it in a scientific paper as if he's speaking scientifically right mm -hmm. now. He's not. So that is probably the biggest danger. So in our modern day, 
be aware when people say stuff like that. I'm following the science. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. Because these are not scientific statements. In fact, saying follow the science is itself not a scientific statement, right? That is a metaphysical statement about what we ought to do and who we ought to listen to. <laughs> um, the next thing he did, I got to go through these a little bit more fast because we're, we're running out of time. Uh, the second thing he did, Darwin destroyed the concept that man is made in the image and likeness of God. Mm. So up until this point, even the people who were evolutionists argued that man was special. So maybe the rest of the world come from, came from animals, but man was special. Guys like Rousseau didn't. They thought we came from an animal. Mm. But again, they didn't scientifically prove it. They just inferred it. Remember, guys like Rousseau already denied the being made in the image and likeness of God. And I'll explain the philosophical implications of that statement in a second. But Darwin, quote unquote, proved that man descended from an animal and therefore destroyed man's being made in the image and likeness of God. Now, yeah. what, what does that statement mean? Uh, I can't remember who said it, but they were like, well, you know, I, I think that God is like a six foot white guy. You know why? Because I'm a six foot white guy and I'm made yeah. in the image of God. You know, like, right. what, what, what does that statement actually mean? What it means is it refers to our origin, our purpose, and our obligations. Mm -hmm. That's what that statement refers to. It, it has all three of those implications. Being made in the image and likeness of God means that man is special. We have a special origin in which we were intentionally created for a purpose. That's what that statement means. To make something in your image conveys the idea of putting yourself into it. So if I were to make a painting in my image, it means it would represent me. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that I'm actually made of canvas and pastel. It just means that that painting is designed to represent some part or facet of my being. Yeah. And in that case, it just it resembles me. That's all it means. God, when he makes in his image and likeness, what it means is that he intentionally creates man for the purpose of shining his invisible image to the visible world. Yeah. That's why we're here. Okay, It gives us purpose. That also means that man has equality in value. Right? So why do I believe the unborn child is worthy of protection? Because I believe that human life, considering that it bears the image of God, mm -hmm. is worthy of protection, even if it doesn't have consciousness, and even if that life hasn't contributed anything to society. You don't have to work to be worthwhile within the Christian economy. This is, by the way, not present in any culture before Judeo-Christian values. Mm -hmm. Right. So why do you think it was so widespread? And by widespread, I mean totally universal to practice slavery without any forethought to it. Mm. It's because the concept of you're just as valuable as me, and therefore I don't have the right to deprive you of your liberty, right. that didn't occur to anybody yeah. until this concept of being made in the image and likeness of God permeated through culture. And then you have Christians, the first one would have been Gregory of Nyssa in the 700s, who said, whoa, wait, wait this isn't right. Yeah. You can't deprive someone of their natural God-given freedoms if they're made in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't make any sense. It also makes sense of why we defend life uh, from the mode of conception. Mm. It makes sense as to why we believe that, as Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, right? Why do I believe that some other race of people that has nothing to do with me is just as worthy of life as I am? Yeah. Why should I believe that someone who's less intelligent as me is just as valuable as I am? Why should I believe who someone who's weaker than I am is, is just as valuable as I am? Where does that come from? It comes from this concept that we're made in the image and likeness of God. What gives you your value is your creation. It's your special place in the cosmos, not what you've contributed to society. Mm. That's a really, really important concept. This is why in the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. 
And then they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Where do they get that from? That doesn't come from paganism. Right. You're not going to find any pagan religion that teaches that. It doesn't come from scientific rationalism. Mm. Darwin, in his book On the Descent of Man, he actually argues that we shouldn't uh, endeavor to, to forward medical science, including vaccines, ironically. <laughs> And the reason why is because he's like, well, you're protecting weak genes yeah. by doing that. Let them die. Let them die. Let yeah. the weak die and let the strong survive. Yeah. So his, the idea that man is intrinsically valuable starting to decay mm -hmm. with Darwin's theory, as well as, again, our purpose. What's our purpose? Darwin would just say just to, to thrive, essentially, just to procreate. That's essentially your purpose. Or you create your own purpose, as Friedrich Nietzsche would say. Mm -hmm. But there's no ultimate purpose for man. There's no ultimate value for man. We ascribe value as we see fit. Mm. Um, and then also, again, there's no meaning for what we're doing, right? So my desire to do certain moral things is just found in my instincts, right? There's no such yeah. thing as good and evil. There's no such thing as morality. It's just what I instinctively want to do versus what my culture wants me to do. And sometimes those things coincide and sometimes they don't. And who should win? Should it be my culture or my instincts? Darwin, uh, again, this is another quote from The Descent of Man. I'm sorry, this is from On the Origin of Species. He says this, Finally, it may not be a logical deduction, but to my imagination, it is far more satisfactory to look at such instincts as the young cuckoo ejecting its foster brothers, ants making slaves, the larvae, and the word that I can't ever pronounce, feeding within the live bodies <laughs> of caterpillars, not as specially endowed or created instincts, but as small consequences of one general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live, and the weakest die. Mm. What's implicit there? Implicit there is slavery and infanticide. Yeah. He says, I see it in the animal kingdom, and yeah. it helps them survive, so why not for us? Yeah. Why can't we do that? So Darwin is starting to etch away at this concept of mm. we're made in the image and likeness of God. We have obligations to our creator. We have obligations to our fellow man. It's just you're alive, your, your whole role here is just to multiply, to vary, and to, to die, right? That's it. Yeah. And you make up your own value system, and you make up your own will within this world, and that's what's going to lead the way. Now, Darwin would have been absolutely appalled. So when I say that, people would be like, oh, so Darwin would have been totally cool with, like, the Nazis, or he would have been completely cool with, say, uh, the eugenicists within America, like Margaret Sanger, who, by the way, was one of the founders of Planned Parenthood and sought mm -hmm. to sterilize minority groups. Um, would he be okay with that? And the answer is no, he wouldn't. He absolutely wouldn't because Darwin's coming from a Christian background. And I'm gonna get to that, the importance of that in one second. But uh, this is another interesting quote from Darwin. Um, I actually can't find it right now, but essentially what he says is that down the road, uncivilized man would become extinct as a result of civilized man. Mm -hmm. And he sees it as a good thing. He's like, yeah, like all the uncivilized people are just going to be wiped out by civilized people because mm. that's the lot. We're more evolved, quote unquote, than they are. So the entire idea, in fact, of race comes from Darwin's ideas of the variations within species. Mm. And he says in his book, he's like, well, if I believe that all variations in, in kinds uh, equate to species or subspecies, how would I look at the races of man in that, in that viewpoint? He mm. says, well, they would have to be species or subspecies. And so he starts arguing about why different species have different capabilities than others. Now, Darwin, to his credit, from what I can read, doesn't seem like he was a racist. Hmm. 
but he does preach an orthodoxy in which racism would be very easy conclusion to make, right? Chihuahuas had just have different capabilities than Huskies, hmm. right? German shepherds just have different intellectual capacities than do poodles. It's just a fact, right? Yeah. There is one that is better than the other. So why wouldn't I look at different races within mankind and come to these same conclusions? Right. If I doubt that we're made in the image of God, mm -hmm. and I doubt that we have any divine purpose or potential, why would I believe anything otherwise, yeah. right? And so he makes a really weak defense as to why we shouldn't be racist, but he admits that a lot of his colleagues were racist and they were very much justified in their belief system, mm. which leads to the final point. The mistake that Darwin made is by believing that the ethics that he had inherited from his Christian background would be stable so that his theories were never taken to their logical conclusion. Mm. Now, another figure that Darwin really liked was a guy named Thomas Malthus. Now, Thomas Malthus, he wrote a book, it's, it's the Essay on Population. It's a really interesting book. Thomas Malthus was also a Christian, but in it, he tries to explain why certain, essentially, populations grow and certain populations don't grow. And his theory was essentially that if you have enough resources, the population can come to meet it. But if you don't have enough resources, the population can't grow. And therefore, the fear that Malthus had was what if you don't have enough resources for the population you're trying to support? So this is a quote from Thomas Malthus. If it be supposed true that the only way of accounting for the difficulty with our present knowledge of the subject appears to be that of redundant population, necessarily occasional by the occasioned by the prevalence of early marriages, we must be repressed by occasional famines and by the custom of exposing children, infanticide, mm -hmm. which in times of distress is probably more frequent than is ever acknowledged to the Europeans. Relative to this barbarous practice, it is difficult to avoid remarking that there cannot be stronger proof of the distresses that have been felt by mankind for want of food than the existence of a custom that must violate the most natural principle of the human heart. It appears to have been very general among the ancient nations and certainly tended rather to the increase of population. What is he mm. saying? He's saying that there are cultures that kill their young in order to create more possibility of food and nourishment for their tribe. Mm. Now, he comes from a Christian background. He's like, that's wrong. However, he assumes that his theory, which is that populations can't exceed the resources, will never be taken to the logical conclusion, and that is, whatever we must do to prevent the expansion of the human race beyond our resources must be done. Mm. He assumes that that won't happen, but it did happen, yeah. right? And so a couple hundred years later, you have a guy named Paul Ehrlich wrote a very influential book called Population Bomb in the 60s. And he argues that the fear of mankind becoming wiped out as a result of overpopulation is so strong that we need to do everything possible to prevent that including infanticide, right? This is what led China to their disastrous one-child policy yeah. in which they forcibly sterilized women. They uh, commanded women to leave their kids out literally to die, just leaving them out in boxes mm. to die, right? All these things happened because they were so afraid of what Paul Ehrlich is saying that they're willing to do whatever it takes to stem that, yeah. right? This is where environmentalists uh, modern global warming uh, alarmists get their ideas from. We could be wiped out. This could be the end of mankind. We need to do everything we can to prevent global warming. I remember when Roe versus Wade was overturned just last year, 
by the Supreme Court. There were many people who were making this population argument as to why abortion should still be legal, why we need to continue to do it. Well, there's too many people. Mm -hmm. It's going to wipe out the human race. We, we don't have enough resources. Even in popular culture, you have uh, Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War, which the villain, Thanos, he is afraid that there's not enough resources for the universe, and so he wants to kill half. No. Now, in the, even in the movie, they never actually say he's wrong. They just say he's wrong to do that, right? Like, it's wrong for you to wipe out half of life. Yeah. But the premise is always considered <laughs> as right, right? Yeah. His premise is considered correct. Right. Now, interestingly, I don't know if, uh, it's not really the point of what we're trying to get into today, but I, I will point out, uh, there, Paul Ehrlich had a colleague um, who bet him that he was wrong. And what his colleague bet him is, hey, the, most, the best resource for getting out of this is not culling the population, it's human innovation, mm -hmm. right? If we innovate, we can innovate our way out of this dilemma that you see mm -hmm. through technology and through advancements. And so they bet that five precious me metals would not go up. So Paul Ehrlich said that these five precious metals would go up in price because they would become more rare. And his friend said, no, no, no they're going to go down in price because resources are going to increase over the next couple of years. And they bet $1,000 and Paul Ehrlich lost. He lost the bet. Mm. So all those minerals went down because human innovation outstrips population <laughs> problems and difficulties, right? Mm. Uh, so. Uh, again, I don't have time to get into it, but it's a really interesting and fascinating study about all the innovations we've made over the last couple of centuries that have actually, even though this is the highest population the world has ever seen, we actually have the most amount of wealth and prosperity that the world has ever seen. Yeah. So far from Malthus's theory and Paul Ehrlich's theory, we have more prosperity now in the greatest population that we've ever had because of human innovation. But the main point going back to Darwin is again, these guys did not think about what their ideas would do in the hands of people who don't believe in God, mm. right? So Darwin would have not been okay with what the Nazis did. However, he wouldn't have been able to argue with the logic of the Nazis. Why right. shouldn't they cull populations and species that they find inferior, yeah. right? If A, there's an existential crisis due to overpopulation, and B, there are superior races, why shouldn't we eradicate inferior races so that the population can grow in the right direction, right? Why shouldn't they do that? Yeah. And someone like Darwin wouldn't have a good answer other than the Judeo-Christian values that he came <laughs> right. from, which is, well, we're made in the image and likeness of God. You can't do that, yeah. right? And that's what Malthus is saying. He's like, you, you shouldn't do it. He yeah. doesn't give a reason. He's like, you just shouldn't do it. Yeah. It's wrong. Um, but again, according to his own theory, actually, you should do that. Yeah because how else are we going to live? Right. What is right? right and wrong in that at that point? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. the complete deterioration of right, wrong, beauty, goodness, truth, everything falls apart because of what Darwin's theory purports, right? Yeah. That there is a plasticity to man. There is no fixed way or mode in which man must exist, mm -hmm. and there's no fixed way in which we must behave. Yeah. It's all just kind of contingent on what the society needs. Yeah. Uh, this is why, again, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's important. There are many Christians today who are like, well, even from an evolutionary biology standpoint, uh, the LGBTQ thing doesn't make any sense because our mm. whole purpose here is just to procreate. It's actually you not know what Darwin says. Mm. He says that that's one of the things that your DNA has predisposed you to want to do, mm. but actually you don't have a purpose on this earth. It's whatever you make it. And so if you could be happy transitioning to be a different gender, why not? Right, why not? Mm. Right. right. If it's all just about 
existence and existence is fleeting and we're going to be wiped out one day anyway, who cares? If something makes you marginally more happy, why not do it? Yeah. Right. So the only argument against these things and, and Christians need to really wisen up here. The only argument against these things comes from our theology. You got to realize that all these practices that we're so appalled by now were normal in paganistic societies. The only thing that allowed us to argue against them was this concept of being made in the image and likeness of God, yeah. serving a creator who gives us value and, and glory and honor as a result of creating us that way and dying in our place, right? Yeah. All these things fall apart once you remove Christianity out of the base. So yeah. uh, very important to understand Darwin, very important to understand how he moved us and why his effect, his legacy is so lasting and negative, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I've heard it said that, that, you know, Christians are just trying to find um, some kind of um, purpose or, you know, reason for why we're here. And it's kind of a mm -hmm. fantasy that we were created by this loving God, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. you could say the same for an evolutionist that they're trying to find a way that we were here without God, right. you know, so there's a lack of accountability and we can do whatever we want to do. But I would say, as you mentioned, it's, it's harder for a, a, you know, an atheist evolutionist to be behave consistently with that. Um, than it is, you know, for, for, for a Christian, you know, because like you say, they it always comes to the point where, you know, Hitler, it's fine what Hitler did because he had this purpose and he was very sincere about it and yeah. you know the theory and you know it's hard to even speak that out but yeah. um, but what is right and wrong who are you to say you know right. if, he, if he truly believed that this was helping the human race and that kind of stuff so. and I was talking to someone on Sunday about that and it's so fascinating at the Nuremberg trials where they were trying the Nazi officers for their war crimes the argument <laughs> that the lawyers gave was well who are you to come into our country and tell us what to do Mm. Who gave you the right to tell Germany how they should live? Yeah. You're a completely different culture. You're a completely different society. And the argument that they gave, which is such a lame argument, but they're like, uh, well, there's a law above the law. And that's what we're judging you by. And they wouldn't say what the law above the law was, <laughs> but they're clearly appealing to Christian values. Right. That's what they're doing. But they're yeah. unwilling to say that. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, who are you to judge Germany unless you do have a law above the law? Yeah. Unless you have an objective standard to say, it's not just I feel that's right, right. or I feel that's wrong. It's it is right. Yeah. It is wrong, yeah. whether I agree with it or not. Right. Yeah. And where that came from. That's awesome. Well, we've got some questions. You want to jump into that? Let's do it, man. Cool. Thanks for thanks for sharing that stuff. A uh, question from Cal. Um, this that's a great question. A good question for you. Peter um, handles a lot of the counseling here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Um, why do Christians share the same statistical rate of divorce mm -hmm. as everyone else? Um, and they quote, what God has, hath made, let no man put asunder. So, I mean, is that a true? I've, that's, I've heard that statistic. I can't back it up. But the divorce rate is at least the same as out in the world. No different in the church. Um, um, so I, I've heard contravening statistics, mm -hmm. but honestly, I don't care. As a, as, as a, <laughs> it I'm happens. Just, it, it does happen. Yeah. As a counselor, I'll tell you, I see a lot of divorce yeah. in the church from professing Christians. So, there is again, very good question. If I were to give you my answer, it would be this: it's not a result or a failure of the values contained within scriptures. It's right. people's failure to conform to them. Yeah. Right. So we have a cultural move 
that has devalued marriage. It's devalued the goodness of it and the importance of it to such an extent where people aren't wrestling anymore with how bad it is to divorce. So mm -hmm. think about back in the day, right? Divorce is really unthinkable in a more impoverished country. Yep. Because like if we're living in more primitive times, it's like my ability to stay in a marriage with my wife is vitally important for us. It's not like I could afford to go and get my own house yep. and to have the kids split time between me and my wife. That, that's just not even possible, yeah. right? You'd have to do everything you could to maintain that marriage just out of pure pragmatic reasons. Right. As a culture becomes more wealthy and decadent, the natural reason that pre, uh, predisposes people to lasting marriage starts to erode. On top of that, as we've been talking about with Darwin, as a culture starts to supplant God, the moral reason to stay married starts to go away, yeah. right? And that's where you get into no default divorce within our country. I think that was in the 70s. And you see mm. divorce rates skyrocket after yeah. no fault divorce gets put into the books. Because a culture, we understand ethically very little. You have to represent abstract ethics in a concrete way. And that's what politics do. So people are like, well, the, the culture is saying that marriage is not important. You could divorce for no reason. That shouldn't affect you. But it does. Yeah. The importance of marriage, you can understand it in an abstract way by reading your Bible. But the culture is going to speak to you through movies, through politics, through different ways that are going to be far more influential in your views of right and wrong than what you understand abstractly in Scripture. Yeah. Right. And I remember as a kid, there was a slew of movies and TV shows that came out that promoted divorce as just something that happens. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember when Mrs. Doubtfire came out yeah. and <laughs> movies like that. And it's just it happens. Yeah. And I, I remember I rewatched that movie with my wife a couple of years ago because I hated it as a kid. I watched it again. And I really hated it as an adult mm. because as I rewatched re it, it's like Robin Williams is very funny. It's a funny film. But when you look at the message, it never gets to the point where it's like something really bad happened and they got divorced. Yeah. It was just he was a goofball. He needed to grow up. She didn't want to put up with it anymore. And they divorced. And at the end of the movie, he literally says, hey, it's just what happens sometimes. Right. <laughs> you know, He's like talking to a kid. He's like, it's not your fault that your parents got divorced, but just sometimes people just don't work out. And yeah. that's uh, whatever. This idea of the, uh, I guess you'd call it the casualness of marriage and the casualness of divorce yeah. has infected the church to a large level. And what people have done in the church is they have the same mentality as people outside the world. They just spiritualize their sin, essentially. Yeah. So as a, as a counselor, what I'll tell people is like, look, Jesus says in Matthew 19 that what God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce is a terrible thing. It's an evil thing. But then he also says, because of the hardness of your sins, God allowed it to be so, mm. right? So what's he saying? He's saying that divorce is always bad, but there's a hardness to the heart of man. Our iniquity is so bad that we could commit actions so horrific within the bonds of marital intimacy that are exponentially increased because of that vow. And that danger is so large that God's made an allowance for divorce. Yeah. So man, and if you take that personally as an allowance, yeah then you're kind of sick in the way you read Absolutely. <laughs> so like, Absolutely. Oh, then God has made it okay. No, okay. Yeah. read it again. <laughs> yeah, read that again. Right, yeah. that, he's say, that he's saying, man, like what's worse, having a situation where a man and a woman are free to leave one another or having a situation which someone is not free to leave and they're undergoing consistent abuse, yeah. right? And they're not free to leave it. What's worse? That, that's definitely worse, right? So Jesus is saying because that potential exists, God's allowed it. 
but it's so bad. It's so evil that you don't want to do it. It's kind of like, yeah, you could go into the doctor and have your arm amputated, but that's only if the alternative is right. you die from an infection or yeah. something like that. If you go into the doctor and you say, hey, my hand kind of hurts a little. He's like, well, let's lop it off. You'd be yeah. like, I'm getting a new doctor. You know, like. <laughs> Got a little ingrown yeah. nails. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's a lost cause. You right. know, and what I've seen in my time of counseling is that everybody in counseling, when they have their mindset on divorce, they will exaggerate every flaw to a divorceable offense. Right. So they'll be like, well, you know, he lusts and he struggles with this. And it says, Jesus says that if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's adultery. So he's committed adultery and therefore I could divorce. Yep. It's like, well, that's not what the passage says. And that's not what it means. Or, well, you know, it's, it does say in the Bible that abuse, right? That there are certain passages that we can uh, pull from that would intimate that abuse is a, vi uh, a viable reason for divorce. Yep. They would say, well, you know, Verbal abuse is even worse than physical abuse sometimes. And, you know, he called me an idiot. And therefore, I'm totally just like you said, Dave, you know, you got to check your heart if that's yeah. your heart. If, if you're going to take it so uh, so casually yeah. that you're going to do this based on the and you're not willing to work on it, you're not willing to do whatever it takes to preserve your marriage. There's something defective in your heart. There's something wrong. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying I don't think I've ever presided over a marriage that ends in divorce in which I don't see real issues. Yeah. Right. I've never right. seen that happen. I'm like, well, I don't understand why they can't make I understand why they can't make it work. What I, but I believe that there is a power greater than them that could make it work. Yeah. I understand how difficult it is. I understand how horrible it is to be in an unsuccessful marriage. But the solution is not to divorce. So uh, it's really sad. It's really tragic. And my encouragement to everyone listening, if you're even thinking about it, if it's going in your head, you're like, I don't know what's going on with my marriage. Seek help now. Yeah. Pull people around you that can help and encourage you. Get people that are for marriage, that aren't going to be like, oh, you know, like I go talk to my friends like, well, chicks are crazy. And, you know, what are you going to do? And <laughs> feed my ego and feed my narcissism and feed my uh, just thought process that I'm always right and my wife's always wrong. Do not talk to people like that. They're going to ruin your marriage. Yeah. Talk to people who are going to sit down with you and be like, how did you reflect Christ in this? Yeah. Well, my wife did this. How did you reflect Christ to her? in that instance yeah right that's what i need i need people who are going to not encourage me to divorce and so many people in our culture will encourage you to divorce yeah surround yourself with good sources because making a marriage work through difficulties it's hard it's difficult but it's so worth it, it is yeah. so incredibly worth it yeah and even if there's not you know issues invest in your marriage yeah right you know i mean Absolutely. there's lots of you know courses and retreats and books and like just make that investment i was thinking of my guitars that i have a guitar collection and yeah. i kind of neglect them you know like i should humidify them and clean them and yeah. i don't and they're kind of <laughs> you know just left to their own devices they're not they're not going to especially in tucson get, especially in yeah. tucson you know i'm like oh my gosh but don't let yeah. your marriage be like that you That's know invest true. you know even if there's no presenting issues right um you know treat it as precious but mm. yeah thanks for that peter uh question fti is the i don't think that's a name um Could but be. that's a user, username <laughs> for t for t. Yeah. um if god this this is a, a huge question mm. um a good question if god knew someone would go through cancer mm. why would he create them in the first place so it kind of goes into the why do bad things happen to good people i guess people yeah. say but why would god create someone he knows the future he knows the outcome mm. why, why why would god uh create that and see that and allow that and all that thing yeah no i such a good question and like you said very deep and personal yeah. I, i'm going to give like a really small answer I, it deserves a much bigger answer and I'm, I'm sorry if this doesn't satisfy you could ask follow-ups tomorrow but what i'll say today is is 
what makes a good life or what makes a prosperous life mm. or what makes a, a successful life. And in our culture, we tend to think that a prosperous life makes a good life. Biblically, right. the concept is what makes a good life is our capacity to know God, right? That's what makes a good life. And uh, I was just reading a quote from Dostoevsky today where uh, it's from his book, Notes on the Underground. And Dostoevsky, Russian guy, he was Eastern Orthodox, but just incredible mind and incredibly faithful guy. And he was arguing against that. The problem, the problem of evil is deep for Dostoevsky, right? He really wrestled with it in his books. And in Notes on the Underground, he essentially says, well, if you did just give mankind a prosperous life, who says that would make them happy? You know, perhaps evil and suffering are the things that pull us to God. And yeah. if that's the case, then why wouldn't they be a part of this creation, mm -hmm. right? So the idea, the concept that prosperity in and of itself makes for a good life is, I think, a, a bad premise to start from. So the, the idea is, I want to know God. And whatever course that takes, that's what's going to make it for a good life. Right. So let's take the ultimate example, Jesus. Did Jesus have a good life? Did Jesus have a good life? <laughs> he was born in poverty, raised by Joseph and Mary till he's probably around 12. Then we have no mention of his dad afterwards, so it's a good chance that his dad died after that, yeah. uh, after that time period in his life. Rejected by his brothers uh, completely. They thought he was crazy. His mom supported him for a little bit, but then she had a lapse of faith halfway through his ministry. His closest friends rejected him when they, he needed them the most. Uh, his own people rejected him. And he died when he was just a little over 30 yeah. to public ex execution. Is that a good life? You know, <laughs> it's not quite the silver yeah. spoon in the mouth, <laughs> yeah. is it? And yet, in Psalm 45, it says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his fellow companions. Yeah. So either I believe that the good life is achieved through intimacy with God, or that passage makes no sense. Yeah. Because Jesus did not have a good life from any physical perspective. Right. Uh, Moses is another good example in Hebrews chapter 11. He had the prosperous life. Mm. And the writer of Hebrews makes the comment that he considered the suffering of the slaves to be greater. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Not just different, but better than all the passing pleasures of sin mm. because he looked to God. Yeah. So in other words, he looked at his life. He says, ultimate prosperity and happiness in Egypt, degradation, slavery, suffering, and anonymity in Israel. Mm -hmm. And he says, but the one piece of information that people are missing is God is in Israel. Yeah. God is a part of Israel. Yeah. And that for him was enough of a reason to tilt the scale and yeah. say, yeah, I would rather be a slave with mm -hmm. God than to be a prince without God. Right. That's what we have to come to terms with. Now, again, it doesn't mean that these things aren't tragic, right? Having cancer is absolutely tragic. And I'm not saying that God gave you cancer to draw you to him. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that suffering can be used by God to bring you closer to him. Right. We live in a fallen world because God understood that eternal satisfaction with him is greater than temporary satisfaction on this earth. Yeah. That's why in Romans 8, it says that God subjected the creation to futility and hope. If we were living in a perfect world without any pain or suffering, how many people would be brought to their knees and understand their need for God. Mm -hmm. uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says God speaks to us in our circumstances, uh, but he shouts to us in our suffering. Yeah. For, God, for God, suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, for me, 
I could tell you that my journey to God had a lot of suffering as a part of it. Right. Uh, it, it wasn't because my life was going great. It was actually because in a lot of ways my life was not going great. Yep. And I wanted a solution outside of my life. And yep. God became that for me. So uh, it, it's, it's not an easy question. And by the way, the Bible never gives a clear answer. And I was just telling this to someone last week because they were really wrestling with it. And I'm like, look, Job never comes to an answer on this. And Job is a lot smarter than me. Hmm. King Agur in Proverbs 30, he says that he's not as smart as your average bear. He's like, I am dumber than any other man in regards to this issue. And I've read Proverbs 30. He is not. There's no way he's dumber than me. And so that just makes me feel pretty bad about myself. But he didn't grab it, right? And Dostoevsky did not grab it either. And they were all very much smarter than me. But there's a, there's a great story from Dostoevsky's life that really moved me. So there was this instance in which he was standing in front of a picture of Jesus portrayed as crucified, and he stared at it for like four hours. And people around him, when he finally stopped looking at it, they're like, why were you staring at this thing for four hours? And he commented and he said, I still don't know the answer to the problem of suffering, but I do know what love is. Mm. And that's just like, it's mind-blowing and powerful, but that's what he's saying. I, I don't know, I don't get it, but I do know that a God who would willingly subject himself to that kind of trauma in order to be close to me, right. that's got to be the basis for love. And if he loves me that much, I, I can trust him. Yeah. So again, it's not a full answer. It's not a total answer. But that's the idea. Is a good life, that's what we have to contend with intellectually, is a good life found in physical prosperity or is it found in intimacy with God? Yeah. And that's going to dictate how you view suffering. Again, not that it's not tragic, but it's tragic with hope if unity with God could be resulted from it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like you said, we have a Savior who can relate, you know, he can relate to our suffering and beyond our suffering, you know, um, which is important to remember. And that it's so hard to live, to live this life for, you know, this life is so short compared to eternity, but it's so significant to us right now, yeah. you know, this today, you know, having something, being offered something right now as opposed to something much greater down the road. It's like, I want, just give me the thing now, mm. you know, because that's all we can see. Um, so to suffer, you know, and to see that as a joy because of yeah. what it produces is really hard as a, as a human, at, least. Yeah. <laughs> at least for me it yeah. is. No, I don't about right. you, but. Absolutely. Um, time for a quick bullet question. We, <laughs> uh, we had a question coming from YouTube. Uh, God's word says that life is in the blood I feel odd when donating blood. Am I just paranoid or is this practice of donating blood possibly not a wise thing to do? And I know that you donate, but we only have a couple of minutes. I donate plasma. It's totally different. Oh, no, it's totally different. <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is a lot of people have struggled with this passage for a long time once the concept of blood transfusions got produced. And there's actually a, a group today that rejects blood transfusions right. for this reason, the Jehovah's Witness. They don't do it because they see it as a form of cannibalism. Now, uh, re really quickly, the reason why we don't see it that way is what God is getting at is he's not saying life is in the blood as in life is synonymous with the blood. He's mm. saying life is represented in the blood. Mm. So, for instance, if he's saying life is synonymous with the blood, then shedding of any blood would result in your death. The reason why you yeah. have people sprinkling blood in the temple and stuff like that is because it's symbolic. It symbolizes life because literally it is kind of the life-giving principle in, in yeah. you, in your biology. Right, so it's symbolized in the blood and it's used in that way. That's why Jesus sheds blood for us. That's why he yeah. pours out his blood. That's why we drink in communion. 
the, the red wine or the grape juice, whatever your particular congregation does, to represent what Jesus has done for you on the cross. It's not that I'm drinking in his life. I'm drinking in a representation of his life yeah. that is in his blood. Right. That's, what it, that's what it means. So there's definitely laws about drinking blood, uh, about in, you know actually engaging in it, because even the pagans understood that, and they used it in their pagan practices. But what it's not saying is utilizing blood in a medical way, right? That's not what these passages are forbidding. They would have not been able to conceptualize that back in the day. Mm-hmm. But today we understand that's a very different thing. Right. Me having a deficiency of blood and getting a transmission from you that will bolster my life, that's very different than me drinking your blood, which is not going to benefit my body in any particular way, but it's symbolic of me taking in your life, which is how the pagans looked at it, yeah. right? It's, it's symbolic of me drinking your life, which is bad and evil and gross, right? Uh, what we're talking about is, again, utilizing blood in a life-saving procedure. So, uh, you know, I appreciate the question. I understand where the confusion can come from, but hopefully that eases your conscience a little bit. Yeah. You're not engaging in a pagan practice. This is a very, very different thing. And, you know, the yeah, I, I think it's a very noble thing as well. Right. Because, like you said, there's a very popular cult that won't allow blood transfusions and that kind of thing. Is that is that kind of yeah from that verse? Because life is in the blood yeah. and, yeah, that same yeah. kind of thing. Wow. Well, I hope that helps you out. Um, that's all we have time for today. We've got a, just 30 seconds left. I won't throw you another question for 30 <laughs> seconds. Uh, but, Peter, thank you so much no. for being here on this Monday. And we'll be back um, again tomorrow with uh, Peter as well, right? And, and yeah. Sean, usually tomorrow, and Lord, well. Lord willing, and myself, <laughs> Lord willing. You never know what's going to happen. But thanks for joining us. Uh, sorry if we didn't get you a question today. But please join us again tomorrow. Send them in, and uh, we'll get to more of your questions. Have a wonderful evening. God bless you guys. Thank you for being part of A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.